Well, today I want to read uh, from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 19 to 23, and from Philippians uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 10 and 11. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation today. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honour at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body and is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. And then from uh, Philippians 3 and verse 10. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Well, over the past few weeks, we've been considering some of the ways in which the resurrection of Jesus has a material impact and influence in the world today. Although it's true that the resurrection has inaugurated the new creation, the kingdom of God's rule and reign, and although that kingdom is not yet here in all its fullness, nonetheless, the new creation has invaded the old. For good reason, I've been quoting Paul's dramatic statement in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. As we have already noted, Paul's desire to know the power of Christ's resurrection is pointless unless the power of the resurrection can actually be experienced. However, I think it's worthwhile to take a few moments to consider what we mean by power. For if we look carefully at both of these readings, we can see that they say something about power that's quite at odds with how we generally understand it in our culture today. People who have power uh, inevitably uh, see it as a positive, whilst those without power see it as a negative. Ironically, the powerless generally assume that seizing power, perhaps an armed revolution, is the solution to that problem. But what usually happens is that one tyrant is replaced by another. The oppressed and the oppressor simply switch sides. Because in human relations, power is understood always as power over others. And furthermore, this uh, brief, a brief survey of, of history shows that this is the way it has always been. Not only is this the way it has always been, but we are also told it is the way that things must be. The phrase survival of the fittest, although not originally coined by Darwin, has shifted in meaning from being a reference to uh, evolutionary biology to being used to describe and justify power structures in the modern world. And it's always been that way. In Thucydides' account of the Peloponnesian War, there's a famous passage in which the Athenian generals explained to the helpless Malians why rights were only pertinent between equals in power, and for this reason they were about to do as they pleased with them. It was because the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. 
that's the way it is, that's the way it's always been, and that's the way, well, actually, no. When Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God, he turned everything upside down. In fact, the upside down nature of his kingdom was announced by by John the baptizer, who borrowed the words of the prophet Isaiah to describe his own ministry. He said that he was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In his famous book, The Upside Down Kingdom, Donald Crable notes that John describes four surprises of the coming kingdom of God. Full valleys, flat mountains, straight curves, and level bumps. He expects a radical shake-up. Old ways will crumble beyond recognition. John warns us that the new order, the upside-down kingdom, will transform uh, social patterns. But amid the ferment, everyone will see the salvation of God. In short, the coming of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus overturns all worldly definitions of power. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that seated him in the place of honour at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he's far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and made him head over all things. This statement may in part be an echo of Jesus' words at the end of Matthew's Gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Matthew 22, Jesus quoted Psalm 110, in which the Messiah sits at the right hand of God until all his enemies are made into a footstool for him, i.e. they are conquered. In the New Testament, Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 10 both echo the same thought. And in Colossians 1, Paul quotes what was probably an early Christian hymn. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. The final chapters of Revelation picture Jesus' final victory over all the evil powers arrayed against God. Much has been written about Armageddon, the final battle as it's called. And Hollywood scriptwriters and novelists have found it a rich source of inspiration. If you can imagine the battle of the five armies in the Lord of the Rings, but only a million times greater than you get the idea. But a careful reading of the final coming of Jesus suggests something quite different. In Revelation 19, the supposed last battle is fought, except it's not. There is no battle, there is no Armageddon. All the armies of Satan, the great dragon, are assembled, but there is no description of any battle. You see, All those armies that are arrayed against God are defeated simply because Jesus turns up. 
Jesus arrives riding on a war horse to finally implement the victory that God has won at the cross. And just by turning up, he defeats all those armies. His victory in the cross can never be separated from the resurrection because it vindicates the cross. In Colossians 2, Paul writes that God cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, through the cross, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Jesus entered the grave and emerged again and in Revelation 1 and 18 he said, I have the keys. Now I mention all these texts because we are to be in absolutely no doubt that Jesus Christ is the supreme power and the supreme authority in all of creation. He rules over all other authorities and powers. In the Gospels, when Jesus commanded demons to leave a person, they only had one option, to do what they were commanded. The wind and the waves were stilled because the one who commanded it created them and still held their every molecule together. When the armies of Satan are arrayed for a final battle, Jesus defeats them just by being there. That Jesus reigns, that Jesus reigns is no mere boast. It is a fact echoed in every atom of the cosmos. So it is all the more surprising then that Jesus uses that supreme power in the way that he does. Paul writes about Jesus' use of power in Philippians 2. Though he was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the word that's translated here as cling is a difficult word to translate. Um, For example, in the King James Version, it renders it as that Jesus didn't think of it as robbery to be equal with God. And it's not quite right, but it's not quite wrong either. But it is misleading. The long story short is that um, the word used here is a noun form from a verb that basically means to seize or snatch away. So the King James uses the term robbery. But it was used to mean to grasp something, to snatch it away for your own advantage, for your own benefit, uh, presumably to the disadvantage of others. And that makes sense in the context of the passage. Behaving this way would be the normal expectation of lordly power. But Paul is saying here that despite the fact that Jesus had every right to power and glory as one equal in substance with God the Father, to his own disadvantage, 
He rejected that right in order that we might be advantaged by being reconciled with God. Jesus shows us that in the kingdom of God, power is never coercive, nor is it ever abusive, nor is it ever self-seeking or self-serving. It is not something to be used to our own advantage, but rather it is something that is always used to the advantage and well-being of others. As Tim Keller writes, we see Jesus giving up his power as he becomes a vulnerable mortal and falls victim to a violent miscarriage of justice. But Jesus' apparent powerlessness is actually power used to serve others, rather than power used to control others. To sacrifice power in love is to exert the power of love to change things. This then is the true power of God. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10 and 45. The power of the resurrection then is the power of self-giving, self-sacrificing love on behalf of others. This is the power that the Holy Spirit makes available to us. It is the power that Paul desires to know and he understands that it means suffering. He understands that it means disadvantaging himself. Notice in our reading from Philippians 3 how Paul connects knowing the power of Christ's resurrection with sharing in Christ's sufferings. The power to live in the way of Jesus is the power to love and serve others in obedience to Jesus, even at the cost of our own rights and privileges, even if it leads to suffering. Such talk of suffering, of course, doesn't play well with many professing Christians today who desire only blessings, not buffetings, triumphs, not trials. However, again, as Tim Keller writes, the resurrection does not promise that all the circumstances of life will go smoothly, but it does give us hope that we can be turned into the kind of people who can handle whatever comes. Dr. Martin Luther King was a man who knew his share of hardship and suffering in the midst of the civil rights struggle. He wrote this, Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. The apostles would agree. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. The power of Christ's resurrection life in us is not an internal spiritual experience. Rather, it is a real and true power that affects real and true change within us and consequently through us in the world. It is the power not to demand our own way and, or insist on our, our rights. It is the power to turn the other cheek with people who deserve to have a slap of theirs. It is the power to love the unlovely. It is even the power to love our enemies. 
It is the power to forgive the unforgivable. It is a power to serve the undeserving. It is a power to bear suffering and the marks of the cross of Christ in obedient discipleship. It is the power to make us more like Jesus. This is the way. Thanks for listening. May God bless you in the week ahead.